Right, we're back in 1 Samuel, and uh, I am taking on three chapters today. If you've got a Bible with you, do turn to chapter 21, and uh, thankfully, you're saying, I'm not going to read it all, but um, I will read little different sections, so just be aware that I'll uh, spring it on you from time to time, flick to this part of the scripture. Um, So if you could get your Bibles ready for 1 Samuel 21. That would be absolutely brilliant. The great preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, said this of crisis moments. If you're a follower of Jesus, follow God, say, I'm going to give my all to him and give my life to him. You've said it in passion. You believed it. What happens in the crisis moments? He says this, there is no time to remember the conventionalities and the customs, no opportunity, as it were, of putting on the mask. We just act instinctively. The natural, the real, and the true come into view. When a crisis comes, how do you respond? Where do you go? Who do you rely on for help? What would you be doing now if you were one of the believers in Afghanistan? The threat of the Taliban. People saying that they're going to introduce Sharia law again and that you as an infidel could be put to death. What would you be doing? A leader in the Afghan church was interviewed by CBN this week. They said the Taliban are looking to eliminate the Christians in Afghanistan. We know a Christian believer who we've been working with in the north. He's a leader and we've lost contact with him because the city has fallen to the Taliban. There are three other cities that we have lost contact with our Christian believers. Some of the believers are known in their communities. People know that they converted from Islam to Christianity and they are considered apostates. And the penalty for that is death. The Taliban are famous for carrying out that punishment. Many believers have been forced to flee their own towns, betrayed by the neighbor, their neighbors, people they love, who their children played with, who they worked beside, who they've built community with, people they've prayed for. In 1 Samuel 21, David is on the run from Saul. His men are coming. And uh, we're covering three chapters, so I'm just going to give you an overview before we read any scripture, okay? So it begins actually in the previous chapter. We heard about this last week. There's this dramatic departure gate moment between Jonathan and David. They cry together as David then heads out into the wilderness. And the first place he heads is a sanctuary where the high priest Ahimelech is in Nob, where where the tabernacle now is. And he's spotted at the tabernacle by Duek, who's the chief shepherd of Saul and one of Saul's leckies. And he knows, here comes trouble. I've been spotted. Duek turns in Ahimelech, the priest, for helping David and all the other priests at Nob. Saul orders their killing. That's how serious it's got. The guards are unwilling but Dueg, this kind of Himmler type, was happy to do it. 
So David flees to Gath, to the Philistine town. And you might remember that Gath is where Goliath is from, and it just so happens that at the sanctuary, David has picked up the bread of presence, which we'll get onto in a minute, but also Goliath's sword. He turns up to Gath with Goliath's sword, and of course they recognize him, and they throw him in prison. But he escapes by pretending to be insane, scratching on door, uh, door frames and everything, and they release him. We don't want another one of these guys, they say, and they release him. But he goes off and hides in Adullam in some caves, and he's on his own, isolated, ran to the hills, and God provides people, friends, misfits, who all join together, make a band of 400 men. And these men are ready to fight with David. God's gathering his people. And while he's there, he visits Mizpah and Moab, where, you might remember, his grandmother Ruth was from. And so they look after his parents. God provides a sanctuary for them. And you think, oh, okay, you're in Adullam, that's a safe place. It's called a stronghold. That's what the, the text calls it, a stronghold. So he's in a safe place. Let's just stay there. But he doesn't. God calls the prophet of Gad, glad I'm not American, be very confusing. Gad, tells the prophet of Gad. And he, he um, tells him, look, go out from the stronghold in to Judah. Say, like, why are you doing that? And we're going to get onto that in a minute as well. When Saul hears about it, um, he hears that he's gone down to Keilah. And David, of course, is a man of honor. And he's a man after God's own heart. And the people of Keilah are in trouble because the Philistines have attacked them. Saul is not willing to go and help. And so David is. And they go down and they defeat the Philistines at, at Keilah. But Saul hears about it. He goes, ah, they're going to be trapped. <laughs> he rubs his hands. He thinks, yes, I've got him. I've got him. I'm going to get him. And he sends down his men. But David inquires of the Lord. He knows something's up. And he manages to escape. And he heads out into the hills of Ziph. Don't worry, we're near the end of the story here. Into the hills of Ziph. And David and his men are betrayed. First, by the people he rescued at Keilah, and then second, he is betrayed by the Ziphites, who are actually a people of Judah, so his own people. He's betrayed, and Saul's men are catching up with him, and they're on the hill, and it looks like it's going to be the end for David. So, dramatic few chapters, lots going on, and lots that we can learn about how we can respond to crises in our own life, whatever they may be. Yes, we want to talk about extreme things going on in places like Afghanistan, but what does this mean for you? If you face a crisis, how do you respond? Well, there are a few things that I want to talk about. The first thing is that we need refuge. We need a sanctuary. We need a safe place. And this is where I want to spend most of my time because I believe it's the most important thing that we can know 
when we come into a crisis. Let's uh, turn to chapter 21, and uh, I'm going to read the first six chapters. It says this, David went to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered to Ahimelech, the priest, the king sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what have you to hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread to hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. So David's first move is to head to where the tabernacle is. It's been moved from Shiloh since the Battle of Aphek, which is nearby. I don't know if you can see in the map there, but the Battle of Aphek, Aphek up there in the north of the map, towards the north of the map, um, you can see it's close by, if you can see, it's a lot of writing, um, it's close by to where the tabernacle was at Shiloh. And so they move it. And so this is where the tabernacle is now. Now the tabernacle represented God's presence there with them in the camp, in, the, in uh, the heart of Israel. And so God knows, that, uh, sorry, David knows the first place I've got to go is to the true sanctuary. I've got to go to where God is. I've got to go to his presence. Perhaps David notices, though, the fear of Ahimelech. Ahimelech is trembling. Why are you on your own? Why have you come? What's going on? He's terrified because he realizes that something here is going on between David and Saul. He's afraid. King Saul could come and get Ahimelech. And so maybe that's why David does it, but David starts lying through his teeth. He says he's on a mission from the king. He's not. He said he's got men with him. He's not got men with him. Why is he doing that? Well, we don't really know. What we do know is that the narrative isn't commending his behavior. It's not saying, yeah, guys, go lie when it suits you. It's not saying that. It's just telling us a story. Well, what is going on here is that the author behind the author, the author of all of Scripture, God who breathes out his spirit to give us the Scripture, is saying something about the grace of God. Because here David comes to the sanctuary, he's lying through his teeth, and he shouldn't receive any kind of blessing. If this is works righteousness, if you have to prove yourself to God, then, mm -mm, sorry David, you're not going to get any kind of blessing here. He's done nothing to deserve God's goodness. Worse, he's actually done wrong. Yet, Ahimelech fills David's hands with the bread of presence. Now, that is an outrageous thing to do. 
not only was this holy bread that was given to David while he was lying through his teeth, but the law says showbread, the bread of presence, is reserved for the priests alone. Leviticus 24.9, it belongs to Aaron and his sons who are able to eat it in the sanctuary area because it is a most holy part of their perpetual share of the food offering presented to the Lord. You can't touch it. It's in the middle of the tabernacle. It's only the priests. After it has been shown, presented in the tabernacle, who can eat it. So what's going on here? Well, David is being given access into God's presence, like Moses before him, by grace. The language gives us a clue as to what's going on. Verse 3, David, what is under your hand? What can you give into my hand? Verse 4, Ahimelech, no ordinary bread to hand. Then in verse 8, David says, do you have a spear or sword under your hand? Because there is no weapon in my hand. This repetition of hand, 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 what's that about? Well, when priests were ordained, they had their hands filled. That was a phrase that was used. I fill your hands. Then literally would fill their hands with a sacrifice because they're ready to be priests. So David wasn't to be an ordained priest, but he was to be a priestly king. Unlike Saul, he is to, he's going to be a king who looks to guard presence of the Lord for the people of God. And so here we have some, a, a piece of symbolism that says this king is a priestly king, a Messiah figure guarding and bringing God's people into the presence of God. So God is making it clear, this behavior is not to be commended, lying, to get your way, or to protect anyone. But God made David a priestly king by grace alone. Free gift to David, who would be Israel's priestly king. Not by his own ability to be good, but by a free gift from God. It's not about being the good chapel boy. The good chapel boy isn't the one who earns God's presence. Jesus earns it for us. Exodus 19 tells us God has called his people out of slavery into Egypt so that the entire nation would serve him as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the original intention wasn't for priests only to serve as priests, but the whole nation. You see that? David has not earned back the ability to do that. He's been gifted it as a sign to Israel that God will gift the nation with royal priesthood, as royal priesthood, through a better king. Now, through the Messiah, David, who is a Messiah type for Israel, he points to the better Messiah. He points to Jesus, who never sinned, who is the perfect king and the great high priest, the true Christ figure. So then when we get to the New Testament, we could read in 1 Peter 2, 9, that we, you, if you've put your trust in Jesus as this high priest, this king who came from heaven, 
in order to save you, in order that you could be a royal priest. It says this, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He welcomes us in to the presence of God, not based on performance, not based on rituals, but on Christ alone. Even when we have done wrong, and we are in a crisis moment, maybe you've been in a crisis moment, and you felt like, whether it's true or not, I am partly to blame. I'm fully to blame. This is partly my fault. By God's grace, you can run into the presence of God. Sometimes you have held yourself back from going to God because you think that somehow you have to earn his favor before you go to him. No. Jesus alone has achieved that for you. You do not have to hesitate. Presence of God is there for you because you are a priesthood, because you are royal. King Jesus shares his royalty with you. The great high priest has made you a priest. Grace was shown to David to be the kingly priest. We have the grace of Jesus to enter into an everlasting temple, into the everlasting tabernacle, into God's presence. Now, after David flees Gath, he heads to this stronghold at Adullam, chapter 22, verse 4. Now, that seems like a, a sensible place to be, a place of strength. But look what the prophet Gad says to him after he's dropped his parents at his great grannies in Moab. Obviously, he's not there anymore, but that's where she was from. And uh, let's just turn and see what happens. 1 Samuel 22, verses 3 through 5. From there, David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me. So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. Seems strange, doesn't it? He's in a place of protection in a moment of crisis. That seems like the natural thing to do. But you know what? When God speaks to us, he often sends us not to a place that the world might think is a place of strength, but a place where the world might think is a place of weakness so that we can have true strength in God. What do I mean by that? I mean this. I mean that when you're in a bad place, maybe you're in a place of crisis, and somebody comes along to you and says, hey, you just got to think about self-care right now. You just got to look after your number one. Just look after yourself. You just have enough discernment to realize that throughout Scripture, God often doesn't say that. 
He often sends you to the difficult place. Do you know why? Because Adalim and the stronghold that you or I get advice to go to is not the true stronghold. The Psalms talk about what the true stronghold is. The true stronghold is God himself. Turn with me to Psalm 18 if you have it. In fact, we're going to have it on the screen as well. It says this, I love you, Lord, my strength. This is David, by the way. Maybe not right at this moment, but in and around this moment. He says, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I've been saved from my enemies. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave called around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. He is our stronghold. He is our place of refuge. And he doesn't require us to sort out our lives before we enter into him. He ran to us, and now we enter into his tabernacle, his presence as royal priests. We've already seen that David seeks God's word for guidance from the prophet Gad when he's in Adalim. Later, in the forest of Hereth, he hears that the Philistines are attacking the people of Keilah. What does he do? Well, it's, it's similar. He inquires of the Lord. He goes to God. Turn with me now to chapter 23, and I'm just going to read the first few verses there this time. When David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, Go, attack the Philistines, and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Here in Judah we are afraid. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? Once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go down to Keilah, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hands. David inquires of the Lord, and it's in total contrast to what Saul did as king. The reason that Saul ultimately wasn't still the anointed king of Israel in this moment was because he didn't inquire of the Lord. David inquires of the Lord again and again and again. When we're in our moments of crisis, run to God, take refuge in Him, and inquire of Him. Ask Him. He loves to speak with us through his word and the prophetic, through his people. And then what we see is that he doesn't just speak to us in those moments on our own, but he provides us with people. The first thing we need in a, in a crisis is to inquire of the Lord, who is our sanctuary and our strength. The second thing we need to do in a crisis is find friends. In the background here of this priestly blessing for a future king, Dueg, the Edomite, this chief shepherd of Saul, is 
looking over people's shoulders while he's in conversation. I think that might be David. I think that. Are you sure that's David? Oh, I see my chance. I see my opportunity for power. That I can be useful to King Saul. You can imagine this in a movie, can't you? The focus was originally on David and his conversation with the priest, and then the, the camera pans to someone in the background. They look menacing. Well, that here is Durek. And David sees the writing on the wall. He runs to Gath, this Philistine town where Goliath is from, with Goliath's sword in hand, which had been kept at the sanctuary. Perhaps he thought, okay, there's nowhere to go in Israel. My only friend really is Jonathan, and uh, it's not really likely for me to be able to access him right now. I'll go hide among the Philistines, our enemy, the one place they wouldn't dare chase me down. But of course, they recognized him, they arrest him, he has to feign being insane, and then he manages to escape. You know, he finds refuge in the, ca- in the caves of Adullam, but he doesn't remain isolated. Extended period of isolation, we know they're not good for us. We've just been through a lockdown. Hands up if you know they're not good for you. I mean, they're not good for us, right? According to YouGov survey done about nine months into the COVID restrictions, one in four adults in the UK said they had feelings of loneliness in the previous two weeks. Loneliness is a, it's an epidemic at the moment. We need people to get around, and for them to get around us. A few weeks ago, we talked about this problem of many acquaintances through social media and other things, and little or no kindred spirits in our life. Deep friendships, David and Jonathan type friendships. In the first pages of the Bible, that's what we read. It's not good for man to be alone, and God's intention for humanity throughout the Bible is so clearly seen that we're supposed to thrive in communities, communities that image the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to image God in community, but not homogenous communities. People of variety, of great difference from one another, not what the internet is currently doing to so many of us, which is to narrow our type of friend even smaller and smaller and smaller than it ever has been before. And everyone starts to look and sound a bit like me. Oh, it sounds like a nightmare. We want people who are different from us. God has designed it that way. You know, these people who, these 400 men who gather at Adullam in the caves of Adullam, around David, are a people who are totally different from one another, and they are united by one thing, humiliation. Now, I don't mean that in the negative sense. I mean that they've gone through a moment of humiliation where they realize their need, and actually anyone who is a follower of Jesus will have been through this. Because we all realize at a point in time that we needed God. We need Him with everything we've got. It's a realization made. Let me read it to you. 1 Samuel 22, jumping back 
It says, David left Gath, verse 1, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered round him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. Discontent. That literally means bitter in soul. <laughs> These people realized their need for God. They realized their need for a Savior, yes, in King David, but more so in the king that he followed. God's remnant, the hope of nations, are a bunch of misfits. People chewed up, people spat out by life who recognize they need God. That's who the better Messiah, the better king conscripted. You realize that? When Jesus came, he didn't look for the cool guys. He didn't look for the guys with him who will win people and have influence. He looked for people like this. He looked for the fishermen. He looked for the zealots, the terrorists. He looked for the tax collectors, the people who were hated the prostitutes, the sinners. Those were the people that he built the church upon. You know, one temptation right now as we get back to meeting in person is that we find ourselves congregating around people like me. It could be easy to think, oh, I've really missed friendship, and, and, and I see someone coming in, and they're kind of a similar age to me, and, and they look kind of cool. I quite like to be their friend, <laughs> and so I'm going to go and talk to them, and I'm so excited about it, and that's just kind of how we think naturally, but actually God would say, hey, look out for the person on their own. Look out for the person who's different from you, and with these people who have gone through this same humiliation, and have found all their answers in Christ, find that this unity in Christ is the perfect breeding ground for deep friendships that are not possible by those shallow estimations that we usually make. If you want depth in your friendship, then look around for people who are different from you, not exactly the same as you. Look around to build community that's built on Christ and not on the type of clothes you wear or the type of coffee you drink or the type of donuts you like to buy. Build your friendships on Christ and they will go deep. When David is in real trouble later on, chapter 23 in verse 16, it says, And Saul's son Jonathan went to David. He's in real trouble here. And here's his kindred spirit at Horish. And he helped him to find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You shall be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horish. He strengthens him. Jonathan strengthens David, and he strengthens him in the Lord. When you go and encourage someone who's in a bad place, when you look to someone that you know is a believer as well, and you want to go and help them, 
then strengthen them in the Lord. Don't just give them a pat on the back. They're there. Pray for them. Sit with them and wait on God with them. Cry out with them. Maybe they, maybe they feel in that moment like they don't even know if God exists. Maybe they feel in that moment like they, they might even hate God in that moment. Sit with them. Don't judge them. Sit with them. Help them to be strengthened in the Lord. Where Saul, with all the help of his spies, the army, and the treachery of the Ziphites, and the Kelites could not locate him, Jonathan found a way, because Jonathan loved him. You may or, not have, may or may not have experienced that, that kind of friendship. Unfortunately, I don't think a lot of us will have. I think that's the sad truth. But all of us can experience a friendship like it. In fact, one that is better. The Apostle Paul describes it in 2 Timothy 4. He says, at my first offense, no one came to my support. He was on his own. Everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. That's because he understands the grace of the Lord. That's how he can say, may it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord stood at my side. Did you hear that? So no matter what situation you're in right now, no matter how isolated, no matter the crisis that faces you, the Lord stands beside you. He is the best of friends. When everyone betrays you, he is the best of friends. He is with you. In crisis, we must find sanctuary in God and friends, first in him and in his people. And let me wrap up with this. We also need provider. Chapter 23, verses 26 through 29. Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, come quickly. The Philistines are raiding the land. And Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. That is why they call this place Selah Hamalekoth, and David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. It looked bleak for David so many times. Yet time and time again, when the odds are stacked against him, God provides. Early on as a Christian, I read a book called God Smuggler by Brother Andrew. I don't know if you've read that. If you haven't, please do. It's a great book. And as part of it, there's a story. By the way, he was trained in Glasgow. Did you know that? The Bible Institute in Glasgow? There you go. He retells the story of driving into Romania under the brutal leader of Ceausescu. The guards stopped every car in front of him. Every vehicle's owner was forced to take out every part of their possessions. They were looking under the hubcaps. They were digging in underneath the seats and lifting everything out and up. He thought, man, the dozens of Bibles just sitting in my boot. I'm, I'm in trouble here. And he decided in his heart that the only way that it was ever going to be possible for him here 
to get through this checkpoint was a miracle. So he prays. He's praised for a miracle. And he said every car, every vehicle in front of him was searched in this way. And they got to him, and he's getting ready to open his door. In fact, he tried to open his door, and he found that the guard's knee was against his door. He wouldn't let him open his door. Then a minute or two, waved on without a search. And actually, throughout that book, you, you see that there, this wasn't a one-off. Can't just put it down to a fluke. God blessed them. God was with them. God provided for him. David was spotted by Doeg, Saul's himmler, at Nob, and God provides the eyes for David to see the danger. He um, revealed, he's revealed, David's revealed as the Goliath killer at Gath and imprisoned. God found, provide a way of escape. He was isolated in Adullam, in those caves, with Saul hunting him down. God provides 400 and then another 200 misfits for him to command. All of God's priests are killed, and with it, his access to God is curtailed. God provides an escape for Abiathar and his ephod to inquire of God. The priests had a remnant in Abiathar, and David inquired of the Lord through him. He is finally tracked down after betrayal from the Kelites and the Zephites, uh, Zephites in Judah, and God provides a Philistine attack so that Saul needs to respond and leave. That's in three short chapters. God provides. And now, even on this mountain where it looked like there was no way out for David, God provides. God is with you. Do you know that? Do you know that if you step out in faith, when God is calling you to do something, God will provide. Too often we are content to stay in the caves, in the strongholds, when God is calling us to be weak so that he might provide in strength. Will you step out? Will you step out on mission? Will you be used by God for great things? Not because you're great, but because he's great. Because you're willing to be weak so that he might be strong through you. Brother Andrew was not impressive. It's not an amazing story because Brother Andrew's an impressive guy. It's impressive. It's amazing because God is impressive. Because God is good. Because God provides. Because God is with his people. And we need a new generation of people who are willing to step out when it looks impossible. Just trusting God one step at a time. Sometimes we think about these great leaps. What about just the little ones? Will you speak to someone about Jesus this week? God provides according to all his promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. The truth is this. There is no way out of death, no way out of sin that keeps us from God, and in line to be judged without God's intervention. Separation from God is certain. Isolation and unhealthy relationships are certain. Death is certain, except 
accept that God's promises in Jesus, the great high priest and the king of kings, are absolutely certain. Put your trust in him. You can be far more certain of him and his promises than anything this world will tell you. He is your sanctuary. He is your friend. He is your provider.